Hello, it's Tuesday 30th of May. I'm Hannah Pearson. On today's show, Gary Bowman and I will discuss the key travel and tourism talking points from the month of May. So let's get started. This is the Southeast Asia Travel Show. Hello, wherever you are in the world, and thanks for listening in. So it's the end of May. We are five twelfths through 2023. And this is our first monthly roundup show for a little while. Hannah and I have both been traveling on the road in various locations. But once again, May has proved to be a pretty busy month. A lot's been going on, plenty to talk about. So we've created a list of 10 key regional stories and developments from the past 30 days, covering everything from Golden Week to augmented reality and tourism taxes to record airline profits. So Hannah, let's dive in. Where should we begin? Well, let's go with China, right? And it's always very interesting to hear what happened there. Of course, they've had their golden week. Um, Gary, you follow this a lot more closely than I do. What did we learn from China's golden week this month? Yeah, it was a good place to start because it did kick off the month. So China's uh, golden week, there are three golden weeks during the year. The May golden week uh, is the shortest of those, just five days. It started between April the 29th and May the 3rd. An interesting golden week, really, because it's the first one of any importance since China reopened its borders. Can't really take seriously uh, the Spring Festival, the Chinese New Year holiday, because there just were no flights and there were still restrictions on outbound travel, particularly group travel. So what did we learn from the May golden week? Well, probably not a great deal. I would say what we probably learned is that this is kind of the launch pad for the recovery of Chinese travel, but it's going to be slow. I think that's one thing we learned. It's going to be gradual and phased, um, just like it was in in other countries around Southeast Asia. So the the big headline story was domestic travel, 274 million domestic trips. That's a huge figure, 274 million domestic trips. Uh, which was significantly up on on 2019. Cities across the the, uh, country welcome more travelers than ever, both uh, by plane and increasingly um, by overland high-speed rail, which was uh, booked up much more this this year than it was previously. So I think that's an interesting aspect to look at, the overland travel um, aspect of domestic tourism. Um, But I guess the other interesting factor is that average spend was much, much lower than it was back in 2019. So now, the economic impacts of COVID-19 are having an impact in China on domestic consumption and tourism, something we probably need to look at in the outbound sector. In terms of outbound, there were 3.12 million uh, outbound trips made during those five days. Combined figure that China is quoting of 6.26 million, that's inbound and outbound trips. Now, that's something that we should get used to because Uh, China is doubling up on its outbound and inbound figures. It started this at the beginning of the year. Uh, The China Tourism Academy, which is a very respected um, information and research uh, agency in China, said that for this year, and this is a figure we should probably look out for, there would be 90 million, 9-0 inbound and outbound trips across the year. That would equate to 31.5% of pre-pandemic level. So remember that figure as we go through the year, 90 million for the year. And for Golden Week, it was 6.26 million. So I would say probably on track for that. It doesn't look as though it's going to be anything higher than that. So Chinese are traveling again, um, but the numbers are probably a lot lower than perhaps people in the region were expecting. Yeah, that's interesting. So around 30% of 2019 level. So I wonder how that will then stack up later against um, Thailand's aim for uh, 5 million Chinese tourists. 
assuming that that's not that that five million wasn't a thirty percent of their twenty nineteen target, so it must be a little bit higher than that. So interesting. Yeah, it is. I mean, Thailand is saying that so far this year it's received one million Chinese yeah. visitors. China was the number one outbound destination. If you look at the reports published by Trip.com, uh, the big OTA, or Ma Fung Wo, which is uh, another sort of social commerce uh, outbound uh, travel booking site, Thailand was number one on both of those. Japan was number two on both of those. Uh, for Ma Fung Wo, Malaysia was number three. Uh, for Trip.com, South Korea was number three. But across both of them, for, the, for that period, for the Golden Week, there were five Southeast Asian destinations in the top 10 for Trip.com and six Southeast Asian destinations for Marfung War. The one that was missing from Trip.com is the Philippines. And that's quite interesting because Marfung War tends to be used more by younger, uh, trendier travelers. So Philippines seems to be trending with younger people. Hmm. Interesting stats there. Very interesting. Thanks, Gary. So let's move then. When we were just talking about Thailand, it's, it's probably a good time to to talk about them more. And of course, May has been a a massive month for Thailand, just in terms of the politics, hasn't it? There's, they've had the election there, of course. Although the Move Forward Party have ostensibly won the election, we can say it is uh, still far from a, a done deal, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely right. I mean, it was a fascinating election to watch, um, watching the old military-led government, uh, or certainly the, the former prime minister, really failing miserably in the polls, and this young, thrusting, really, uh, party move forward, uh, gaining the most votes, but it's now in talks with a coalition of eight different parties to form another government. I think they have 60 days to do that. And, you know, the interesting part of that, Hannah, is, as we're seeing in the news stories right now, is that some of the tourism stories are forming part of their policy for the next few years. You know, tourism has become very, very politicized during the pandemic. It's very, very important to the Thai economy. So the issues that we've been talking about over recent months, you know, that dreaded tourism tax, the departure tax, which was announced for the the election uh, and then then dropped, you know, they're, they're back in play again. And so is the issue of cannabis. You know, the, the government, the parties that are um, looking to form a new government saying they will reclassify cannabis as a narcotic drug. If you remember one year ago in June last year, uh, cannabis use was decriminalized. Uh, and, you know, cannabis tourism has really, really taken off, particularly in destinations like Bangkok and Phuket. You, know, you see cannabis cafes everywhere. Even some uh, spas are offering cannabis uh, massage. So, you know, there's another impact there of, you know, how will that actually impact some of the work that's been done over the last year? There's, there's a lot of issues to discuss, I guess. Yeah, I mean, and political uncertainty is never a, a good recipe for tourism success, I think, either. And I'm sure right now the tourism industry is waiting quite nervously to find out what the results of this will be and it may end up only coming through in August, having a new government formed, um, which is quite a long time to wait. Um, I suppose in reality, of course, you have the Tourism Authority of Thailand who are still, you know, driving forward their strategies and that won't change. But I imagine that they must look to the government for a lot of shaping of of what they're planning. And so they're now going to have to, to sit around. And, you know, this, this time now towards August, this is also a key time to try and attract those longer haul markets for the year end as well, put those strategies into place. So it will be fascinating, I think, to see what the impact of this kind of no man's land hanging around is going to have ultimately on, on Thailand's tourism numbers. 
Yeah, I totally agree. I think you're absolutely right there. I mean, there's, there's going to be a lot of issues for a new uh, tourism minister when it, when it actually is, is appointed. And one of those, of course, Hannah, is this tourism tax, which has been kicked around in the long grass for many, many months. You've been saying for a long time that it will never happen. Yeah. It's currently on hold, isn't it? And so that's something they'll have to address about whether they you know, can it for good or whether they bring it back or whether they reform it. Uh, that, that's one of its top agenda, I guess, for the new, new tourism minister. Yeah, exactly. And yeah, I, yeah, I think I think listeners know my my view on it. And every time I see another headline about it being postponed, I just I just laugh to myself now. But yes, it was postponed from June to September, and now the latest is that. Well, obviously, it's going to be up to the new government to decide what we do. And of course, it just comes around that implementation, doesn't it? And I think really that's where the government have been stumbling. We we talked about this, I think, on there. The April roundup, it's just how do you implement uh, a tourism tax like this? Very tricky. Yeah, those are our two top stories so far. The Chinese make golden week and uncertainty in Thailand politically and in tourism as well. Let's move to number three. And this probably is the biggest story of the month, I would say, uh, in this part of the world. And that, that's Singapore Airlines, which announced its biggest profit in 76 years. Tell us more, Anna. Yeah, I mean, 76 years. Um, so it... It's it's really a, a turnaround, you know, from you've had these very gloomy stories of airlines during the pandemic, cutting back on staff, putting staff on on leave, you know, making losses. And then suddenly Singapore Airlines Group come in with this 76-year high. The I suppose the the nice side was that they have promised some pretty significant bonuses to the Singapore Airlines Group employees as a, a kind of reward, I suppose, for sticking with them throughout the pandemic. Um, but they're now, you know, as of March 2023, they're at 79% for group passenger capacity, which is not too bad. You know, they, they've had 26.5 million packs, um, which was up six times year on year. So it's moving. It's definitely moving. And probably that last kind of 20% or so, it's probably still linked back to China, I imagine. And just the fact that East Asia is was still slower at reopening, capacity is still rebuilding. But it's getting there. It's, it's really leading the way, I think, in, in terms of profitability for airlines in the region. Yeah, absolutely. I agree with all of that. There were some, you read through the, the report and there are some fascinating figures. You mentioned most of them there. The net profit figure, the highest in 76 years, $2.157 billion. That's a huge, huge profit. Not the only airline making record profits. Emirates recorded a 2.9 billion US dollar profit. And Qantas, which doesn't report its uh, annual figures uh, for a couple of months or so, is also uh, expected to, to record uh, another record profit. So, you know, looking at those big international carriers, those that are well-funded, they, they managed to get uh, a lot of supporting finance during the pandemic. They've well-managed, all three of them. Now, those are really leading, leading the way out uh, in future. Again, you know, they are. In, it, it's obvious that their passenger revenues are up. Uh, Singapore Airlines said its cargo revenues were slightly down, so you're seeing that realignment gradually happening back towards passenger revel, revenue, while, while cargo is still providing a strong base. But also they've managed to slash their costs, and I think that's quite important, you know. Uh, although expenditure is a lot higher, fuel has been higher, their actual uh, fixed costs uh, tend to be a lot lower than they were before the pandemic, and, that, you know, that's driving the fact that we have higher airfares at the moment, Hannah. Well, yeah, I mean, and that's what I was just about to say, you know, if consumers are starting to see these kind of headlines about airlines having record profit, then they're going to start thinking, well, and why am I paying such high fares? You know, I think consumers could perhaps understand that rationale 
um, at the end of last year, perhaps even, you know, the first half of this year, okay, capacity is limited, okay, jet fuel is more expensive, but jet fuel's really dropped back down and airlines have got money now. So I think the question is how long can airlines go on <laughs> keeping on charging these these very high airfares before consumers kind of lose patience with it? Which segues very nicely, Hannah, into our number four suggestion today, which is, which is one of yours. And that's about fleet expansions and also a comment about airfares. So tell us a bit more of that. Yeah. So the comment about airfares, this is this is quite interesting. This was Tony Fernandez, who's, of course, CEO of uh, Capital A, which is the, you know, comprised of the Air Asia group inside it as well. And he thinks that airline ticket prices have peaked. So he said, at least in the markets where Air Asia operates. So I mean, Southeast Asia, we can imagine. So he's he, he's kind of thinking that it's it's peak, which is interesting because not too long ago he was saying air ticket prices are not going to come down. Um, so he does seem to have changed his his tune a little bit, um, and I wonder if that is also just down to that competition that's really intensifying in Southeast Asia. I mean, particularly in Malaysia, we have My Airlines, which was the new entry to the market, which launched. Hmm, earlier this year, right, Gary, I think. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and they're now flying international routes as well. They've launched to Bangkok. Um, we have SKS Airways, which is a, a, a smaller, more boutique one focused on, um, I would say, focused more on leisure routes. They've just committed to leasing 10 Embraer um, single aisle jets in quite a big uh, value, you know, $840 million dollar deals it's pretty intense so i think he can see the perhaps the writing on the wall is that competition is going to get more intense in malaysia and therefore well what's going to be the differentiator between a lot of these low-cost airlines it comes down to price doesn't it yeah it does i mean you're absolutely right he has slightly changed i'm not too surprised that he's changed his approach and the way that he's using the media once again to get his messages across. He's very, very adept at that. And you're right, competition is growing. Frequencies and routes are coming back. We've also got quite aggressive uh, expansion um, by Batic Air, formerly Melindo here in this region. Uh, I flew with those last week. Um, you know, they're increasing their, their flights around the region to Australia, to Maldives, also around Southeast Asia. So, you know, flights are coming back and that should um, bring down prices. But I think the interesting point that he also made is he said, we don't want flight prices to go any higher. This is Tony Fernandez. We want it to go lower because we want to stimulate more traffic. And I think that goes back to a point that, Hannah, you and I have been saying for months and months and months, is that really in this region, in 2017, 18, 19, the growth of travel and tourism, particularly inter-regional, uh, was based on frequency of travel, not just people traveling, but people traveling more often. And with flight prices as high as they are at the moment, that obviously is it's a financial disincentive to travel more frequently. So Tony Fernandez needs to fill his planes. He says that he's going to get most of his, or I think even all uh, of AirAsia's planes back in the sky over the next couple of, or two or three months or so. Um, but he needs to fill them. And so, and to do that, he, he's going to need to be able to offer lower prices. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and even if we look at the Philippines and at Thailand, so moving away from Malaysia, I mean, we are seeing these fleet expansions. You know, airlines seem to be having increasingly a much more positive outlook. Um, so Philippine Airlines announced that it was going to purchase nine Airbus A350s. I mean, that's that's a, a pretty big um, deal. Again, each each plane is about $350 million each. So, you know, they are really seeing that they need this higher capacity. 
Um, and of course, it's a more efficient use of fuel as well, um, the A350, than some other planes. Um, even Nok Air is also planning um, to expand their fleet as well. So we are seeing this, this airlines are getting back aggressive. You know, they were, they were focusing a lot on recovery, like you were saying, Gary, a lot on cutting costs. Now it's time to start expanding the fleet. It's, it's time to get more people on the planes, time to ramp up those frequencies and those connections. And even if we're looking intra-ASEAN, I found it quite interesting last week that there are more connections. Vietnam Airlines is planning to link Vietnam, have a Vietnam, Laos, Cambodia route. Air Asia are going to bring back their uh, KL Vientiane route. So we are seeing more interconnectivity between the kind of major economies and the, the more developing ones within Southeast Asia as well, which of course is going to help all of those multi-country itineraries for the long haul international markets too. Yeah, totally agree. So that's sort of a four stories we're down uh, of our top 10. Uh, let's move to number five. We only need to talk about this one fairly quickly because I discussed this with the Bali Hotels Association uh, two or three weeks ago. But this is that Bali really is, is becoming uh, a sort of center of tourism controversy, really. It's doing quite well. It's, it's attracting more and more tourists, but it's still making headlines a bit like Thailand sometimes does uh, with issues such as a tourism tax, a tourism quota. These were measures suggested uh, to try and alleviate some of the tourism problems they have. And now that Bali is saying that it's going to uh, crack down on foreign tourists that are paying using cryptocurrencies, all these issues just don't make good stories. Either. They don't make good tourism news, um, but they just continue to to proliferate and you know you, you do wonder whether the governor sometimes you know might be best just not to say so much <laughs> i think a lot of uh, a lot of tourism ministers might be advised not to say so much as well we've learned haven't we over the past three years um but yeah absolutely bali keeps getting in the news and it's not necessarily for the right things and even if you're following the, the local press there's still all of these stories of tourists behaving badly um which you know, is is not great for for having that spirit of community and, and harmony within the communities where the, the tourism is taking place themselves either, is it? Um, so, yeah, it's it's tricky. Tourism is expanding. How do you balance everything? I'm not convinced that Bali's quite got that right yet on the rhetoric. So old problems becoming new problems and, and just becoming bigger and more proliferated. So. Let's move on to number six. Hannah, this is a more positive story, and this is one that emanates in Japan. Tell us more. Yeah, and I found this super interesting. Um, so the Japan Tourism Agency, which is essentially the, the Ministry of Tourism in Japan, and the Japan Association of Travel Agents, um, JATA, have actually put together a campaign to really focus on outbound tourism. Um, and they've selected 24 countries and regions across Europe, North America, and APAC that are going to see some kind of priority promotion. Um, and now a lot of those countries are actually within Southeast Asia. So Malaysia, Indonesia, Philippines, Singapore, Thailand, Vietnam, um, all get to be these countries that are going to be promoted by Japanese Ministry of Tourism, JTA, and JATA as well. Um, and I think this is really behind, um, what's really behind this is this strategy for Japan, this realization that they need to also promote Japanese outbound tourism to be able to get the planes filled. Um, so the number of Japanese outbound travelers is very low still. March 2023, only around 700,000 Japanese people were traveling overseas. That's still about 36% of 
of 2019 levels. So that's really low. I mean, other countries we have seen, I think, a much higher percentage of people going, yes, we're going to travel outbound. Now we've got that opportunity. Um, Japan, for whatever reason, seems to be much slower at that. But of course, airlines need the traffic both ways um, to be able to reinstate routes. And so I think that's that's how they really see outbound travel, which is super interesting when you compare it to um, you know, a, a statement that uh, Jokowi, Indonesia's president, made not too long ago about how he would love to basically stop Indonesians from traveling overseas. And this, this is not, not, not a rule or anything, but you know, he was saying so that they would travel more domestically. It's, it's like a very different mindset. Indonesia's like, how can we stop these, these travelers from going out? How can we make them travel domestically instead? Japan is, how can we stimulate these travelers who have been traveling domestically to now go overseas? But luckily for Southeast Asia, we're on that list. Yeah, interesting contrast, and you're absolutely right. It, it, Japan's outbound market has been very, very slow and fascinatingly slow. And you know, I think we'll be, both be watching very closely in the second half of the year. Um, two of the two of the region's biggest outbound markets, you know, China and Japan. How will they regrow now that we're starting to see more frequencies on flights? You know, less restrictions in terms of travel. Uh, will those markets grow as as perhaps they were expected to several months ago? Or you know, as you said, Hannah. Will domestic tourism um, play much more of a role for the rest of this year? Interesting to, to watch out. So next, back into the region then, Vietnam. And with Vietnam, it's interesting because one of the big problems that the, the local tourism industry say there that's holding back the recovery of international tourism arrivals are visas. You know, they're saying there's, there's a limited number for visa waivers. The visa itself is only 15 days, which is quite short. Um, for many countries, and they, they want to see a reform. And the government has kind of consistently this year not said no. They've said, yes, we're going to look into it. But they keep saying we're going to look into it. They keep kind of issuing resolutions that they're going to look into it. But things don't really still seem to be moving. Um, so the, the latest, really, this was mid-May, was the government saying that they're going to consider offering unilateral visa-free stays to more tourists, more countries. They're going to expand that list of countries who can get e-visas. The Ministry of Transport needs to look at opening up more routes with international airlines, make coordinations of flight times more flexible. There's all of these different ministries who are involved, but we've yet to see any really firm action and say, yes, this is what is going to happen. This is the time frame that it's going to happen. And as we keep saying, you know, the, the longer you <laughs> delay on this, the, the slower the recovery, really. Yeah, the slow of the recovery, because as you said, Hannah, you know, tourists now around the world are looking at their bookings for the end of the year. And if there's uncertainty about what the visas situation is or, or how long you can stay or whether you can get a visa on arrival, you know, automatically sends uh, your search to, to another country. And, you know, you could probably say at the moment, tourism uh, in Thailand has benefited from the fact that some of its neighbors' uh, visa access policies have been um, not the same as they were before the pandemic. And, you know, that, that in a competitive market. The, the basic thing that you have to do is make it easy for people to arrive, particularly for key markets like China, Japan, but also the longer haul markets as well. It, it just seems a no-brainer. And as you said, Hannah, they've been talking, talking, talking about this. We've been talking about this issue uh, for several months. Um, whether it gets towards a resolution, who knows? But if they don't do it quite soon, you know, they're risking the, the second half of the year in terms of their visitor arrivals. Absolutely. So let's go back 
closer to home to Malaysia. And Gary, this is a story that you picked up on that I, I kind of missed. Tell us about it. The pride of globalization, Hannah. <laughs> That's the way. There's a new project, a new project in Malacca called the Sail Malacca, and it's taglined a pride of globalization. Now, this is a huge uh, real estate development project. Nine towers shaped uh, like a ship, and they are connected. Here's the good part, Hannah. These nine towers—they're going to be the. I think the phrase is they're going to be the tallest nine tower-linked structures in the world. For whatever that means, but the interesting part with that is that they these nine huge towers, which will have everything you know, luxury hotels uh, that have retail, that have business, all of those things, entertainment, blah blah blah. Um, but they're going to be connected at the top. Nine towers connected at the top by guess what? A four hundred and sixty meter long circular swimming pool connecting nine towers. Now, does that remind you at all of Marina Bay Sands? Oh my goodness. Yeah. Why? I think that, that's my question. Why, why, well, why? does Malacca need this? Yeah. <laughs> well, this is part of a huge development of the Malacca waterfront. Uh, I don't know if you remember, we've been talking about the Malacca Gateway for a couple of years. This was a huge redevelopment project uh, where they reclaimed a lot of land. They're building a new cruise terminal, a, a new t- a container terminal, and then loads of business stuff around the, the port area. It, it, it went very, very quiet in 2021 and it eventually got canned because I'm not sure if it ran out of money or whatever. But anyway, that project seems to be back on, on board now, the Malacca Gateway, and the sale is going to be the new flagship. Uh, it's saying, and I think the, the phrase, <laughs> here are a couple more phrases that you'll like, Hannah. Um, it's going to, to make Malacca a world-class tourism and investment destination. So that's one phrase, but probably the best one is that the sale Malacca comprises fashion and corporate aspects which make it stand out as the next Milan. <laughs> oh, okay. The next so Milan. We'll Let's there. leave it there. No more said. Mic drop. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. Right. Number nine. <laughs> and um, on to number nine. Uh, we'll switch gears a bit, go to aviation. And um, talking about sustainability. This is lots of news coming up in the region around SAF, sustainable aviation fuel. And that can only be a good thing. So, of course, we had the Lima um, air show in Langkawi last week. Um, Massive air show happening there. Um, And there always tends to be a lot of aviation related kind of news that emanates from that. Um, So a nice development was that the Malaysia Aviation Group, so essentially Malaysia Airlines and its subsidiary airlines, have signed a deal with Petronas that Petronas will start to supply them SAF from 2027 at KLIA. Sarawak um, was proudly shouting out about how it has its own um, form of SAF, which is produced from algae that they're growing in the state. And they actually tested out this SAF on a plane. They actually had to bring the plane from Europe. I think it was I can't remember which airline it was because no local aircraft was adapted to be able to handle that kind of stuff. But they were talking about how they have these big plans, of course, to establish their own regional boutique airline that they keep talking about. Um, And they were saying, well, maybe this regional boutique airline could just be powered by locally produced SAF, which I thought was a a kind of interesting concept. I'm not sure how workable it is in in practice, but in in theory, that's a, a lovely idea. And even Thai Airways has signed an MOU with the Thai company as well. 
more on understanding SAF and looking at SAF rather than, right, we're going to supply you it. Um, and for me, the timelines are still a bit long, you know, 2027 for uh, Malaysia Aviation Group, that's still in four years time. Um, and we know that they've already piloted planes um, using SAF as, as kind of test runs. Um, so it, yeah, it just seems like a, a, a long way, a long time to wait for this to be rolled out, but for sure steps in the right direction. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I'm sure this uh, this story will run and run and run. SAF is, uh, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a hot topic where it goes from, from here. Um, it's going to be about volumes, isn't it? And you are mentioning there some of the, the projects that are designed to to do that and to, to, to find new ways to create uh, fuels that are, as you said, you know, biosafe. But uh, there's so much testing and, you know, the actual capacity building is, is going to take time. But uh, yeah, positive movements in the right direction. Yes. And the last one is a pick from you, right, Gary, going into AR. Yeah, so this is a story that was announced this month. Singapore Tourism Board has become the first tourism board in the world to partner with Google on its new augmented reality experiences, tour experiences um, within a destination. Pretty interesting for a number of reasons, I think. One, the fact that Google is using this um, to, to partner with, with tourism boards. It's this new AR core geospatial API technology, which it launched, launched I think, last year. And interesting that it, you know, it's partnering with Singapore in our region as, as the first one. What it aims to do is to bring alive augmented reality tours so that uh, users using their mobile phones can capture you know, elements of history, elements of uh, local culture, augmented uh, and see new visuals as, as they're traveling around. I had to play around with the, with the uh, trailer that they put up. I mean, it's quite interesting. It's very cutesy. It will have an appeal to, to certain travelers. I would say, having seen quite a lot of augmented reality projects in China, that the visuals and the graphics on this uh, one in Singapore are particularly inspiring, but you know, I'm, I'm sure there's room for development. Um, but certainly augmented reality, mixed reality, um, is, is becoming a big part of the lifestyle economy in, in countries and markets like China, uh, India as, as well. So you know, there will be a big demand for this, and we will certainly see more rollouts of this kind of thing. And I think we haven't quite yet touched where this de- where this technology is actually going to go. I think we're still at the, the very, very early stages. Yeah, I'd agree. It's, it's interesting to watch, but yeah, well, what are the applications of it? Who's going to use it and how can you monetize it, I suppose, is the, are the big questions. But yes, it's uh, interesting that Google chose Singapore as its first destination. So that brings today's show to a close. We hope you enjoyed the podcast and don't forget to send us your thoughts and comments on anything we discussed or anything we missed out. You can drop us a message on our LinkedIn page at the Southeast Asia Travel Show. Yeah, and of course, you can catch up with the Southeast Asia Travel Show's full back catalogue on our website, the seasiatravelshow.com. So that's a wrap for today, but we'll be back next week to talk more travel and tourism in Southeast Asia. See you then.